0: Hello and welcome once again to Wrestling Memories on Pioneer 90.1 FM KSRQ. We are online at RadioNorthland.org. You can listen to us live and in the moment, or you can pick up a few of the archives of Wrestling Memories. We do have a page, a Wrestling Memories page, for which you can go back and look some 10 years' worth of, of episodes. It's really easy, convenient, and it's fun to go back. I'm going to have to go uh, go into the archives here in the next couple of weeks or months to uh, maybe pull out some classic interviews and put a few best-ofs together. But that's uh, for another time. Uh, Hi, I'm Glenn Braggen, along with my co-host down there deep in the heart of Texas. He's ready to go. Uh, The grizzled vet, Mike McCurdy, a man who's going to have to start his own pro wrestling book club. You're like the pro wrestling Oprah book club candidate there, buddy.
1: I think our show is turning into the uh, the pro wrestling Oprah book club. Uh, a lot, a lot of authors recently, which is a good thing. You know, I I'm love okay with it. book with the, you know, the writers and all
0: that. I'm absolutely okay with it because there's so many books that are, have been coming out or have, are going to be on the way and uh, it's, it's, it's great. I mean, I finally was able to finish the, uh, Jonathan Plombon, uh, UWF book. I really, really enjoyed that one. I, I mean, that, that was one I was very happy with and. It was very well-researched, good, good material. It was was one of those books, you know, pick it up here and there, and the story of Herb Abrams and the whole company and all the little moving pieces, the the cast of characters. It was a really good book. I definitely recommend it to listeners out there who uh, are curious about Herb Abrams or were around during the UWF days when it was on Sports Channel.
1: I remember watching the UWF on the Sports Channel. In fact, it debuted on my... uh on my 18th birthday, October 1st, 1990. So that was kind of fun. You know, my friends and I all got together and watched a little wrestling that day. And then <laughs> I forget what we did after that, but yeah. <laughs> I have not had a chance to sit down and, you know, really get into that book yet. Though, Cause you know, as we've said, I've got a lot of, a lot of books added to the library, just picked up a uh, box, uh, John Moxley's book. So, you mm-hmm. know, kind of thumbing through that one a little bit, kind of little pieces here and there and, Mm-hmm. I must say, I was a little skeptical because, you know, he's still wrestling, you know, does really have the story to tell. And, you know, he does. And it, it, it's a very good book. And, uh, you know, speaking of John Moxley, you know, I'd like to offer, uh, you know, best wishes and all that to him. Just announced that he is going through uh, alcohol treatment center. Uh, Tony Khan made the announcement the other day. So, you know, uh, best wishes to him and all that for a, a recovery and, you know, come out those doors, you know, bigger and better and get back in the ring.
0: Oh, I'm very much looking forward to reading, and yes, I, I share your sentiments there, Mike. Uh, we definitely uh, hope he get, takes that next step right into the road down that road to recovery. But uh, when he he'll be ready when he comes back, there'll, there'll be a spot for him, of course, because boy. Uh, he's definitely, uh, he had a career. I mean, last few years, uh, you know, now with AEW and the shield and stuff. Uh, I mean, yeah, a person probably would just think that would be what the story is about, but the death match stuff the working in these, uh, indie promotions, just, you know, scraping and surviving and, and, going through, uh, you know, you know, being at that age as well, trying to grow up, you know, or maybe, maybe not trying as hard, but trying to find your way through pro wrestling and, and, and life with, I mean, this, this definitely does have a good, good tease to it.
1: Well, definitely. And it's told with a, you know, with a great sense of humor and all that. So, you know, he wrote this book himself. He didn't have anybody, you know, working with him so, you know, wrote it himself. Great sense of humor. So, you know, it's, it's very easy to
0: yeah, I'm. I, he, he, I mean, I listened to uh, an interview he did with Chris Jericho here uh, from for Talkish Jericho this recent one uh, in promotion of the book, and yeah, it, it definitely sounds like he had a lot of. It was it was an experience. It looked like he would definitely put a lot of his heart and soul, you know, as much as a person probably could, and it really does have that personal personal quality to it. But you know, Mike, speaking of another book on the uh, Grizzle Vet Book Club show, we uh, had. <laughs> Yeah, and this is a great book. I've been reading and uh, reading it here and there. Here I, since I I stopped, uh, I finished the uh, UWF book, and I'm really, really uh, enjoying what I've I've read so far. I've never been disappointed with this man's work on on projects previous. And it's, this one's definitely like putting him up even further to that nth degree with me. Uh, Mike, uh, the guy, the the, 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 biography we're talking about is Truth Be Told. And that's the uh, story of B. Brian Blair. And this was a much anticipated uh, book and you were, you were quite excited about it, uh, back uh, when we had this, uh, our guest, uh, previously on this program.
1: Oh, definitely. You know, like I said, we got a returning guest and. Uh, yes, I was always, you know, interested, but I'm always excited when a new book comes out. And mm-hmm. I will admit, you know, most of my knowledge of Brian Blair is from the, you know, the WWF and, you know, part of the Killer Bees. So, you know, it, it's kind of fun to be able to get into it and, you know, read about their story and they're coming up. And on. So, yeah.
0: Oh, absolutely, Mike. And, uh. Well, you know, I for me, when I think about, you know, Brian Blair, I also think about the WWF days. But I also uh, remember reading a lot about him in the uh, the After magazines about his time in Florida, and also uh, did some international stuff, and of course uh, with the UWF and Herb Abrams. Well, we're going to bring our guest on today uh, to talk about truth be told. Uh, yes this is the brian blair story he was on just a few weeks back but hey we love to have him because he he puts out such great content ian douglas welcome uh, back to wrestling memories
2: Glenn, mike thank you so much for having me it is a pleasure as always
0: oh man it is such a pleasure and just uh some quick uh, upfront kudos to you uh for this uh book that you put together with b brian blair i remember you having you on previous and and you uh you you were teasing and told a little bit about what we can expect from it and man you had me I was so waiting I went and ordered it that very day after we did our interview and I know that Mike got his copy shortly thereafter and my it, this is a story that I mean a lot of people probably like Mike was mentioning may remember him from the you know the WWF days with with Jimmy uh and but I mean there's a lot of fans too that are maybe will you know remember him from a few other you know working for Watts or or whatever but this is just a good book from a solid uh, wrestler who had a great career he wasn't Hulk Hogan he wasn't the big main event he was a guy that worked his way up and down the card and a guy that had uh, definitely uh, was one of, the, well, I guess he's one of those last guys in that generation to uh, come out of the territories. I mean, Brian's got such a great story because he does touch into those areas the beginning of sports entertainment, uh, the territories mentioned, and then the fallout from it. Uh, so this is quite the story. This is a definitely one that the, the fans are going to be uh, checking out. I encourage them to check out.
2: I enjoyed working on this story so much. One of the things that I enjoyed about this, it was the same thing working on Bunky McGraw's book. It was the same thing working on Hornswoggle's book. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's that you go into the project with a very limited perspective on what these guys' careers were and what they meant to the business. And then when you get a firmer understanding of... What they underwent during their early lives, what their early years in the business were like, what the progression was like, and what the aftermath was like, you realize that you really didn't know anything at all. And mm-hmm. that was absolutely the case in getting to know Brian and then researching his backstory. It was absolutely fascinating for
0: yeah, and for me, it was really interesting to know, I mean, because I've always just long associated with Brian with the state of Florida. I mean, his longtime uh, residence. And uh, the thing is, a lot of people, and you know, probably will find this out too, that Brian didn't grow. Uh, Brian wasn't born in Florida. He actually grew up in Gary, Indiana, of all places. Of course, we all know Gary, Indiana, as the home of the Jacksons. But this is one of those first things right off the shoot. It's like okay, I I thought he was just a a Florida guy all the way, right away.
2: That's right. He's a Midwestern boy, and he gets right into it in the early part of the book that moving from Gary, Indiana down to Tampa, Florida probably saved his life in some respect because it looked like he might have been headed down the wrong path there and in Gary, it certainly, seems, it certainly seems like he may have been trending in that direction. Mm-hmm. You know, the beach of Florida was very positive for him and his family. Oh,
0: yeah. And when we talk about, about Gary, Indiana, I mean, a lot of stories have come out through the years that that wasn't exactly, uh, you know, the, the, the safest place to live. But, I mean, the Jacksons came out of it. Did he ever have any, from what you could gather with conversations with him, did he ever... Uh, I mean, he, his age, was he around any of the Jacksons, or did they live nearby? Did he have any sort of connection uh, from what you gathered in your conversations with Brian?
2: You, you know, he didn't mention it, um, and I, I imagine that if he had run into the Jacksons at any point, it definitely would have come, come up. Also, um, before we proceed, I have to throw in a little bit of a plug. I'm so happy that you read John Promen's book on the UWF. I actually edited that book, oh. um, especially in the early going. Mm-hmm. I saw him on on his Facebook page. He was lamenting the fact that no one would, no publishers had picked his book up. I reached out to him, encouraged him to give me a call. We spoke for probably an hour and a half, and I told him to send it over to me, let me take a look at it, let me give it an early edit if mm-hmm. he would permit me to do so, but. He had a 400-plus um, you know, getting, I think at the time he was approaching the neighborhood of 500 pages of solidly researched books with a ton of interview content. He was He was complaining that the publishers he reached out to would have preferred that he cut it down to 300 pages. If, he, if, if there was going to be any hope that he would get it published. And I told him, there's no sense in sacrificing 30% of your overall work. The, 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 the demand is there for this product. The interest mm-hmm. is there in the product. So put it out yourself and, okay, and pick it up in its unadulterated form. And he did, and I'm very happy.
0: And I'm so happy that you were able to kind of come in and and, and get him in that right direction because I, I know John through uh, you know, Facebook and, and stuff and you know, through the various uh periods of him working on this book and oh it was always so encouraging to him because the story was so interesting to me because growing up that that Herb Abrams UWF was something I you know, I watched on sports channel or I read in the in the after magazines and this Herb Abrams was such a character and then like a few years into the nineties, all of a sudden he's dead. And of course, leaving a big mystery about uh, the person behind all of this and I was I'm just really grateful that you were able to kind of help step in to, to help him help John out because this is a, a something that it was you know th- 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 isn't meant to be sitting on a shelf somewhere. This is really a, a book that was definitely needed to be released and, uh, and definitely something that I, I cannot say enough good things about.
2: All credit goes to John. It simply would have been a travesty if he worked that hard and that diligently for that long on this sort of a project and it never saw the light of day. So um, yeah, no credit to me. All credit is rightly deserved. By yeah,
0: absolutely. And you know, it just sounds like from the story, I mean, he was in a, uh, the, the inspiration kind of came when he was at a lower place in, a uh, low place in life and he, this was kind of a book that helped him out, even with helping through some mental health challenges too. So you know, to see it uh, be able to get released instead of uh, just sitting in, in limbo was another thing that, you know, from a personal side for, for John, a personal accomplishment.
2: Absolutely. And now I, just hope he, now I just hope he continues. You get one on the board, you establish yourself as someone capable of putting out your work of quality mm-hmm. and more people want to work with you. And when those opportunities come, I hope he grabs hold of them and just persists, because that's what this is all about.
0: Oh, absolutely. And uh, yeah, we. I, I did he ever have anything did, when you t- you know chatted with him or anything? Did he have any uh, sort of hints about something that he would like to work on in, in the pro wrestling business, or would, did it sound like that he was kind of in out of you know this was kind of a one and done? What was it? What did you get from him as far as any sort of potential follow-ups, or did he, did he keep his cards pretty close?
2: Well, I wouldn't say that he necessarily uh, kept his cards close. I would just say at the time he was focused on putting this one out, in the same way that when I was working on Seven's book. So in the early going, I would venture to guess most people aren't thinking about getting two, three, four, or you know, significantly more when we're talking about someone like Scott Teal or or John Casper or or Kenny Bevan Casanova, um, people are worried about just getting one Mm -hmm. successful book on the board. And then those subsequent opportunities, they materialize after you accomplish one. Mm -hmm. And so um, John, I think he was just focused on getting the first one completed. But now that that's completed, I hope he will... Um, either find another area of wrestling to research or link up with somebody else and put out another work. Mm
0: -hmm. I'm going to have to pose that question to him next time I chat with him online. I'm going to bring the grizzle vet, Mike McCurdy, in. Mike is back. He was working on something here uh, for the last few minutes, but I do believe we have connection with McCurdy. Mike.
1: Yeah, definitely. uh, The UWF, Jonathan Palmo, we need to get him as a guest on on the show. He's another one that we need to talk with. He's a great guy. Obviously, you know, the, the this interview we're talking about, uh, Truth Be Told, the B. Brian Blair story, um, what I'd like to know, and this is always a question I have for a, a writer when they have a book come out, is, you know, the the initial, like, beginning, you know, how did you, you know, make contact with Brian Blair and get involved with the project and, you know, just, just kind of the beginnings of crafting uh, what became Truth Be Told? Sure. I'd reached out to Brian a few times. Of course, Brian wrote the
2: afterword to Bugsy McGraw. Months later, I received a message. I might be a little off on the order, but I don't know that it matters all that much. I received a message from Kenny Casanova asking if I would be interested in doing Brian Blair's book because the original author of the book, Scott Stevens, was looking to unload the project because he had some other things that he wanted to do and some other things he was interested in. And so I said, sure, I'd be interested in it. I enjoyed my brief interactions with Brian. I wouldn't have a problem at all. And uh, can you pass that along to Scott? I had a probably hour-long discussion with Scott. Scott spoke with Brian. And uh, says the next thing I knew, I was on the phone with Brian, and we were talking about scheduling interviews uh every monday wednesday and friday for about four months was our initial run
1: now as, as the story is you know going together you know you're starting pieces like i said you know like many people you know we, we know the killer bees and uh, stuff like that that's the, that's the main thing you know that was the uh you know the major network promotion. obviously wwe at that time was you know huge and everything but as the story is beginning, like I said, we find out, you know, started in Florida, trained there, uh, you know, Hiro Matsuda's involvement. Uh, he also worked mid-South, you know. As you're fleshing it out and you're realizing, you know, what are you learning, you know, like, as a writer that kind of, like, surprised you, that, you know, the things you didn't know that you're interested in? Because that's always the best part of writing something is when you get to do the research and learn things that, you know, about your, your subject.
2: Oh, my goodness. Um, I don't even know where to be begin with that one. I had um, I have no idea Brian was such a prolific river. And not just a prolific river, but a a connoisseur of ribs. He has this deep appreciation for them. Uh, there's also the the deep and abiding friendship with Paul Thorndorf that he did really um, not the friendship but the fascination with Horndorf Preceded Brian's wrestling career because Brian was a huge fan of Paul Orndorff when Paul Orndorff played football for the University of Tampa, and Brian was a teenager selling sodas in the stands of the football game. Moving from there, uh, Brian's deep friendship with Hulk Hogan, of all people, Brian had the not Hogan's very first match, but his first match of any major significance when hogan was wrestling in super destroyer down in florida and their friendship persists to this day in fact hogan contributed the afterword to the book and then the the japanese theater of brian's wrestling career. that he spent a a significant amount of time in japan and in in the process of researching that you Track down those gems on on YouTube and other sites, and you see Brian in the late '90s, early 2000s, giving power bombs to Osamu Nishimura in uh, in the opening matches of the New Japan shows. Um, so yes, it was it was incredible to Fred and Brian's entire wrestling career and just. Uh, to understand that he had these little um, forays into different areas and all of
1: these relationships
2: that you never would have guessed based solely on the three to four year run he spent in the WWF.
1: Now, you mentioned you know that uh, he was you know a connoisseur of ribs, and obviously we hear all about all the ribs in the locker room. We've heard a lot of the stories. You know, are there any that you could share with us? uh today that you know, that would be radio appropriate. Oh,
2: brother. Um <laughs> let's see. Uh radio appropriate. Uh that he was on the receiving
1: end of or that he administered? maybe one of each. Let's have let's, you got a receiving, you got a giving.
2: okay. Well the since I since I know where you are in the book, uh Glenn uh, so, I, because I want to be careful not to spoil any of these for you, one of the first that, that pops in the mind was when Brian was in the the early stages of his wrestling career, and Buddy Colt asked him, or, or Buddy Colt informed him that he needed to get juice, that he that he needed to play and everybody was going to be there watching Blade, and it was mandatory, and if he didn't Blade, then he wasn't going to be able to wrestle. And if they detected the Blade, there was was no chance that he was ever going to be allowed to wrestle. And so uh, Dusty Rhodes and Eddie Graham come down from the office. I think Don Morocco was there, too. The Briscoes were there. Everybody circling the ring. Brian, uh, Buddy Colt instructs Brian on how to cut the blade, tape it up, put it in his mouth. Brian's absolutely terrified. But he wrestles this match with hero Matsuda. He gets posted. He gets tossed out of the ring. And then he he jabs himself repeatedly. He scratches himself repeatedly, repeatedly no blood. So he gouges and jabs himself very deeply and drags it across his head. And blood pours forth from the wound. And then he gets back in the ring. Everybody cheers wildly and also laughs. He passed the test only to discover that that there was no test. They just wanted to see if they could get him to do it. In fact, they attempted to the exact same thing with Paul Orndorff. Paul Orndorff declined. And as you know, Paul Orndorff was still able to wrestle, no problem. So uh, that's one that that immediately springs to mind from this floor today. in terms of one he administered, man, there's one from late in his career involving Bertha Fay and Bam Bam Bigelow. Uh, I don't think that one is quite appropriate. Um, oh, there's one involving from his Mid-South days. There's one involving Tom Pritchard, uh, the, the one-boot battle royal. And <laughs> the, summary, the summary of that one is that Brian was in charge of booking because, as I don't know if you know or not, he was married to Mike McGurk, the daughter of Leroy McGurk, and when Mid-South mm-hmm. had its brief fracturing, Brian went up with his father-in-law, Leroy, of course, and had a hand in booking for that segment of the Mid-South territory. So Brian booked The One Boot Battle Royal, and Tom Pritchard got there late. So Brian is, explains to everyone um, that they're going to have this one boot battle royal. He, he writes it on the board, but he lets them know, okay, this thing, is, this thing is just a rib on top. So it's not advertised to the public. It's just a rib on top. So he, he writes it on the board. Tom comes in, and he explains everyone has to only
1: wear one boot.
2: So, okay, fine. Tom's going to be going to enter the ring last and somebody distracted him so everyone had one boot on lace but as soon as they got in a position to go out they laced their boots back up and hit the ring so by the time Tom is introduced and he's coming out last shaking hands with the fans he gets to the ring gets in the ring and the people at ringside are saying hey where's your where's your boot where's your other shoe and He's embarrassed but the match proceeds and everybody in the ring just starts attacking and stomping Tom's foot throughout the match um, that is that's one of Brian's absolute favorite ribs
0: <laughs> that's pretty good
2: I was gonna
1: say one of the ones that I uh, enjoyed reading it's kind of like in it's like in the first part of the book is uh, the one where they had Brian as the referee with uh, butcher Vashon and uh, Angela Mosca and just Angelo at the Pop- end where, you know
2: An- Angelo Papo. Pop- huh? Angelo Papo. Angelo Pop-o.
1: sorry, not Moscow. Papo. Yeah. Uh, and they, you know, got him going where, you know, oh he made the wrong count. It's supposed to go over and, you know, he's just in tears. And it's Jack Briscoe who comes over and uh you know, lets him know, hey man, you're 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 good.
2: <laughs> yeah, where he where he thought he they they pretended that he counted the pinfall on the wrong guy. And they're telling him, Oh, we're finished in this town. He could never come back. The local promoter is going to have to sell his home because we're absolutely finished. So yeah, he thought he made this business destroying mistake, but it was, it was all a it to break into the new guy.
0: What a way to start a career for Brian though, being down in Florida with championship wrestling from Florida, getting trained by Hiro Matsuda, but he also had so a lot of great hands at the time who were in that, in that locker room including the likes of uh, Jack and Jerry Briscoe uh, of course Buddy Colt and the the boss man Eddie Graham uh, just how important uh, was buddy Colt as far as because uh, Brian mentions him uh, in the book in very glowingly talking about buddy and his and in, in, in accordance to his early days and how they maintained a longtime friendship.
2: Oh buddy Colt. The relationship with Buddy Colt, that was absolutely instrumental to Brian's career. Um, Buddy Colt lived in the same apartment building as Brian uh, after Brian's parents split up and uh, Brian's mother and Buddy's wife were very good friends and that's how the relationship developed and Buddy was actually the person who drove, uh, who drove Brian down to the, uh, the Sportatorium, uh, not the Sportatorium in world-class championship wrestling in Dallas, but the Tampa iteration of the Sportatorium. He's the one who drove him down there for his uh, his first day of training and for his, not initial meeting with Eddie Graham, but his first meeting with Eddie Graham in that setting to establish that he was going to train to become a captain.
0: Now let's talk about Eddie Graham. Now there was a guy that was Florida professional wrestling, championship wrestling from Florida, uh, getting in with with not only Eddie but later on with with Mike. Uh, that was another thing that was very instrumental in forming a long storied bond with with Brian and and, and the, those guys in the state of Florida in pro wrestling, state of Florida with pro wrestling.
2: Oh, yeah. You mean, do you mean Mike Graham?
0: Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, the father, Eddie, who had the company, but then later on, of course, he had uh, Brian and Mike Graham forming a friendship as well. Kind of a, a tight on the level of like with him and Steve Kern. I mean, these were some guys that had have formed these lifelong uh, relationships all the way up until Mike's passing.
2: Oh, yeah. Well yeah they had a friendship right up until mike's passing um and that's going that friendship with mike is going to come up uh again much later in the book in several different segments but i was down in um you you probably didn't intend for it to be brought up right now but i just wanted to point out i was down in uh florida for the funeral of brian's son Mm -hmm. and we were we were I was sitting in the sanctuary right behind Hulk Hogan and Steve Kern. And when I came out, or um, well, we all came out, I was talking with Brian. I had some photos that I needed to hand back to him. Hogan walked up and Kern came over. And all of those guys were just standing there talking about how they all came out of the Eddie Graham hero map through the system and how all of them are guys that are cut from the same cloth. So that Florida fraternity is a very, very real thing that exists to this day.
0: Mm-hmm. Well,
2: band brothers.
0: Mm-hmm. And also, in, you know, I mean, kind of fun reading in the book about Mike's early day or uh, Brian's early days uh, and, and taking trips with the, the Briscoe brothers and, and talk about uh, another uh, pair of gentlemen who, who kind of had fun with him as well. This is all kind of part of uh, Brian's education, though. I mean, uh, he, I think he learned from observation as far as uh, like getting those ribs uh, properly turned.
2: Oh, yeah. And Brian comes across almost as an embedded, almost as an embedded journalist or as an embedded reporter because he had this, um, he had this unique level of fandom where he, you know, idolized is a strong word, but he was a true, a a true fan of all of these guys from seeing them on local television prior to getting in the ring with them. So you just get this general sense that even though these were his peers and these were all guys he was working with and hung out with on a regular basis, that he just lived in constant awe of the guys that he, um, that he rode with and hung out with on a regular basis. Uh, You get that sense of his, Relationship with Don Morocco, also, mm-hmm. and that that he was just uh, Dusty Rhodes, of course, Andre the Giant, of course. I don't know if you've come across those segments of the book yet, mm-hmm. but yeah, Brian was just a a true diehard wrestling fan. Who you get you get the sense that he truly believed that he lived his life dream. Um, not only getting to be a wrestler, but simply by getting to hang out with all of these guys.
0: Yeah, and and of course, uh, you know the day he uh, the boys find out about his childhood nickname, he 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 didn't become he didn't stay Brian for too long amongst some of those guys in the fraternity.
2: Oh no! Almost immediately, <laughs> uh, due to the uh, errant phone call from his uh, mother to the office, and she let it slip that his. Nickname was Bieber, and from then on, he was, Dusty Rhodes wouldn't let that slide, so he was Beeper from that point on. In fact, um, if you look at the backing card to his World Wrestling Federation figure, the original one, mm-hmm. it, it says right on there that his nickname is Bieber, and that's where it all stems from.
0: We are talking with Ian Douglas, the uh, co-author of Truth Be Told. It's the life story of B. Brian Blair. Brian finally sharing his uh, life story and, of course, many years of the pro wrestling wars and lots of fun ribs and lots of really truly honest, good reading material. And, you know, he hit the road after Florida. He, you know, because you, that's what you did in those days. You worked the territories. He did some stuff with Geigel in, in Central States. But the one we want you kind of touched on earlier was working with in the Mid-South area, uh, you know, with Bill Watts and Leroy McGurk and how, you know, working with Leroy McGurk not only got him a spot and even some uh, promoting or booking to an extent. But it also landed him uh, uh, his first wife, and uh, that must have been one heck of a deal. I mean, just to have a pro wrestling relationship, but not only have her involved in the business, but to be the daughter of the guy who was co-running this this company that he was working for. This must have been quite. And then, of course, you know, it, it wasn't a relationship that was going to go the distance. Unfortunately, uh, this must have just been a, a real interesting time in Brian's life. Uh, some more of his growing pains, but getting that education. As far as you know what he can what he's learned in the pro wrestling business, but talk about just getting involved with Leroy McGurk, the you know the mid South tri state promotions area, and, and and eventually marrying Mike.
2: Oh yeah, well he was a he was a very young guy at that stage yeah. of his career, and he said that he met Mike, and the the two of them she'd been previously involved with Ted DiBiase, but um, at the time they met, she was single. And the two of them hit it off immediately. They had their whirlwind romance. They fell madly in love. And they got married very quickly. And it was right in the midst of that that the fracture occurred between Leroy McGurk and Bill Watt. The Mid-South Territory split. Brian finds himself in a position as, I think, the assistant booker to Skandar Skandar Mm Akbos. And he was able to, not necessarily to book himself into the best of positions, but he had a, an NWA junior heavyweight, world junior heavyweight championship reign, booked himself for a short reign with that title um, and got it off of Ron Starr and then dropped it back to him. Mm -hmm. But um, outside of that, he, Just had a lot of fun booking guys, other young guys like Jimmy Garvin, Hector Guerrero, like to surround themselves with other young talent. But as you mentioned, that relationship with Mike did not last. He attributes it to her jealousy, uh, which he understands because she knew what the young pro wrestlers were, were all about outside of the ring. And unfortunately, it flamed out uh, very memorably and very violently. And when you read the book, you'll get to hear all about that.
0: Mm-hmm, 100%. Uh, and he made, uh, he made a run down in Texas there for uh, the Von Ericks. Uh, how long of a run was that? And I, I was, you know, from what I was reading and research... He uh, was right around the time he kind of, I guess, befriended and became uh, buddies with David Von Erich. There's another guy that left us way too early, but could you talk about him uh, going down to work for Fritz uh, and and working with guys like Killer Tim Brooks and, you know, and the Von Erich family?
2: Oh, um, well, the the very night of the final flare-up with Leroy McGurk, uh, Brian drove on down to to Dallas, drove right up to uh David's property, walked to the front door, received a very, very memorable welcome, uh, that I will not spoil. <laughs> and uh and then uh yeah, David uh cooked him breakfast, entertained him entertained him, uh spotted a cat on the front lawn, got a withdrew a revolver from a door in the kitchen, uh, walked out front and blasted the cat in the smithereens, And that was that was Brian's introduction to life in Texas. Uh, <laughs> he, he considers it the best. I think it was a year and a half to two years that he spent down there, and he was considered to be an honorary member of the Von Heron family. He stayed in David's house the entire time he was there and and had a tremendous amount of fun.
0: Talk about making a tight connection, uh, getting in with, you know, befriending David and, Getting to know that family, uh, we you mentioned uh, you know a lot of people didn't know too much about Brian's time in Japan. Well, was it around the early 1980s that he first was uh, invited to go over to the Orient? And was that involving Vince McMahon Sr.? Let's talk a little bit about how Brian got into uh, Japan because again, this was the beginning of a of a, a nice relationship he had uh, with with them over with the various promotions, uh, most notably New Japan with Antonio Inoki. Uh, talk a little bit about how um, Brian found his way to Japan how that deal was sort of brokered and uh, the relationship that resulted from being in the you know in, in the good hands and, and the good graces of of a company like New Japan
2: sure well Brian wound up in Japan in part because he had one of the most brutal bar fights ever documented in wrestling history with Matt Born. And so he was, I, I believe he was fired from his position in Georgia Championship Wrestling subsequent to that brawl. And Matt Bourne was so messed up from that fight that he had—he was forced to take several months off before he was able to wrestle again in Portland. But Brian went back to Florida for about a week. And uh, Eddie Graham set the deal up with Vince McMahon Sr. because of course the WWF had their relationship with New Japan at the time where Brian would head over to Japan and work for a while there and then he would be ushered into the WWF with some of the, along with some of the other guys who were in Japan at the time. Uh, that included or well, would soon include Paul Orndorff, that included Dick Murdoch, and that also included Adrian
0: Adonis. Talk about a lineup guys. Oh. And you know it was around that time too, uh, you know, he came back he, that he actually he was in the WWF the bef- kind of pre-Hogan. He kind of came in a few months before that and and stayed for a brief moment in time. He kind of was in and out of the of the federation until finally he coming back in uh, as far as the Killer Bees what was that all about was that just sort of a thing where he'd just work a few matches here and there and just or he just didn't find comfort in the in, in the company at the time what was what was the deal with him kind of making these sporadic appearances
2: oh sure well, he spent the he spent the better part of that year in the world wrestling federation that's when they had the i forget is it called black saturday or black sunday
0: i think it was black um, saturday it's
2: black, it's black saturday. saturday yeah so So he was there. He was actually he was actually involved in the Black Saturday broadcast, but um, he was there. Vince McMahon was extremely high on him. He was actually in a match with Paul Orndorff at the time. Uh, Again, this is 1984. They were prepping Orndorff for his main event for his main event push. But Vince McMahon Jr. uh, considered it to be the best match that he'd ever seen at that point. Now, of course, the WWF was not a work rate territory at that time. I'm not suggesting that that was a very low bar to hit, but I'm not shocked that two guys with as much familiarity with one another as Brian Blair and Paul Orndorff at the time, um, they could have had a very good match, and they did. Now, Brian went what the reason Brian left is because he went back down to Florida to visit and Eddie Graham absolutely begged him to return and promised him an immediate main event run because that was during a period of the period of time when Vince was snatching everybody up and Brian had already been a main eventer in Florida he was a guy who had, who had his home in Tampa. He had his house in Tampa at the time. He was a guy you could theoretically count on to stay there. So they Brian went back. Uh, they immediately put the Florida Heavyweight Championship on Brian, and that was the last Florida Heavyweight Champion that Eddie Graham ever had a hand in making the booking decision of because it was January of 85 that Eddie Graham committed suicide.
0: And did Brian open up about uh, his feelings about Eddie's unfortunate suicide? I mean, this was a big blow. I mean, not only being you know, part of his company, but there was a closeness to not only him, but but to Mike and and that whole fraternity.
2: Oh, Brian was Brian was absolutely crushed, and part of and part of the situation there, not necessarily with the Eddie Graham relationship, but that's what was really binding. Eddie to, well, not Eddie, I'm sorry. That's what was really binding Brian to Florida, is that relationship with Eddie Graham. And Brian was was sort of raised to be the homegrown version of Jack Briscoe that could be relied on to carry Florida for maybe a decade or two if he decided to move back there full-time. Now, other, other guys who... They thought they could count on to carry Florida. Um, Kern Kern was gone. I think he was already being a, busy being a fabulous one. Um, the Mike Rotunda and Barry Windham, uh, two other young guys who you would have thought you could count on. I think they were already the U.S. Express in the World Wrestling Federation at the time. So he was he was sort of the last young guy who really had that tie to Florida who they thought they could count on to carry the territory forever. But once Eddie Graham died, it it really was like the the heart of the Florida Territory died with him. And that's when Brian received the offer to come up to the World Wrestling Federation and form the killer beast.
0: Mike McCurdy, I'm going to bring you back into the conversation. I know you have a few things to ask. Our guest today, author Ian Douglas, on this edition of Brasslin Memories.
1: Well, thank you for bringing me back in. I've been enjoying listening to the conversation, and uh, uh, like Ian said, I'm not going to give anything away because the readers need to, uh, you know, purchase the book to read the story. But the story of Brian's first night in Texas when he pulled up at David von Eric's house is still a legendary story that is being told to this day. I have heard that story multiple times, including from a von Eric. Uh, so, yeah, the readers, you really need to pick up the book. If anything, just to read about his first night in in the Texas Territory.
2: <laughs> I was going to say some greetings are uh, superior to others, and I'll leave it at
1: that. But uh, I'm I want to talk a little bit about uh, Brian's work now, uh, as we're kind of getting to the end of this interview. Uh, obviously, you know, WDF. You worked with UWF, and uh, we've all we we've seen him. He was on Dark Side of the Ring, talking about you know Herbie cookies and everything else that you know Herb Abrams had to offer with UWF. But then he went on, and uh, now he's uh, president and CEO of the Cauliflower Alley Club. I was a uh, regular attendee at the time when uh, he first took over from Nick Bachwinkle. But I'm going to talk a little bit, you know, kind of about that, because I'm sure, you know, Brian's had some, you know, talk with you about that and kind of his feelings about the Cauliflower Alley Club. But, you know, let's talk a little bit about kind of, you know, what he's doing now, because Cauliflower Alley Club is a very, uh, you know, is a, a great organization and brian's done you know amazing work with it since he took over well
2: brian takes his work at the cauliflower alley club very seriously um he lamented that the presidency of the cauliflower alley club that it was more of a figurehead position uh more of a figurehead position than anything else before he took over and he really wanted to be hands-on with everything now part and parcel to being hands on with everything. Obviously they have the the CAC events and the CAC fundraising efforts, but he also opens up in the book quite a bit about some of the other unofficial duties that come with being the president and CEO of the Cauliflower Alley Club. And he says that he spends constant time on the phone with professional wrestlers who lives are in dire straits and they're experiencing a whole host of difficulties and he isn't necessarily tossing them off the ledge so to speak but he's had to provide counsel to guys when they've been undergoing divorces or try to help them find jobs and all of those other just I, I want to say counseling services but really he's just there as a as a friend and it's it's an appropriate role for him because i don't know that anyone else really viewed anyone else in the wrestling business during his era really viewed all of the boys with the same reverence as he did and the extent to which he has with with loyalty to Mm -hmm. his ears i don't know that it Exist in anyone else in the industry. I mean, I'm sure there. I'm sure there are a few, but I haven't heard this sort of unconditional loyalty to the wrestling fraternity. Um, I haven't heard that out of anyone else.
1: Hey, he was really, uh, you know, a major part of, very helpful with Brickhouse uh, Brown as far as bringing him into uh, a CAC reunion a couple years ago uh, before he passed, and you know, he helped him out as as well as many other wrestlers, uh, you know, through their you know benevolent uh, fund and everything else. I don't think people realize that, you know, it's not just a reunion where, you know, everybody just gets together and tells old stories and all that, which is part of it, and that's a great part of it, but it's the benevolent organization where they've helped guys, you know, uh, like I said, Brickhouse Brown, they've helped, uh, you know, James Harris, you know, Kamala, and he talks about Kamala in his book. And you know they've helped a lot of guys, and Brian's done a lot of great work. And you know he definitely should be uh, you know proud of what he's done in in the years. I believe he's been with it since 2014 or 15. I think is when he took over.
2: That sounds that sounds about right. And I and mean, it it comes with the territory. He's been forced to make some very difficult decisions. He and I were, and I should say that when you're when you're working with guys on books like this, you, you develop a closeness with them, of course, because they're divulging information to you that they haven't necessarily divulged to anyone else. Now, of course, I hear it first, but then it goes out in the book, and then everybody knows it. But that closeness that's developed from receiving the, the story first, there's nothing like it. The reason I bring that up is because uh, we were knee-deep in the recording of interviews and the writing of the book when uh, when COVID hit and there was a bit of a controversy re- regarding the canceling of the CAC reunion event uh, in connection with the COVID-19 pandemic and people were pushing for him to, ca- to cancel it. And he didn't want to be all that public about his objections or his reason for not canceling it so quickly but he explained to me that he has he has wrestling veterans in their 70s and 80s where the 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 CAC reunion event is what they live for it's their favorite it's their favorite weekend of the entire year and he had people in his ear saying like please don't cancel if you don't have to because I've been looking forward to this all year, ever since the last one, and I'm not—I don't know what I'm going to do if this gets canceled. I'll be devastated. So, those are the sorts of—those are the sorts of opinions that he has to—that he has to balance against the information that he receives with regard to COVID, not COVID nineteen, when those sorts of circumstances emerge. And I'd say all of that to say it is a very difficult position to be in. And no matter what, you simply can't
1: make everybody happy. Now, another, uh, roadblock that, you know, well, did you hit when you were putting together this book is, uh, the book was, I believe you were, I believe you were finished. You're close to being finished and close to coming out for publication. And at the time that, uh, Brian's son was murdered and, uh, at that time, you didn't know if it was going to be delayed a few months, maybe a year. But you kind of went back, and uh, I believe Brian added a little to the book about his son for that. Am I correct?
2: Oh, he certainly did. In fact, the, the timeline was, we were, if we weren't done, we were maybe a day away from considering ourselves done. And that's when Brian called me up. I, I forget if he called me or texted me. I believe it was a text. He called me up and said he didn't think Paul Orndorff was going to make it another two days, and he was absolutely devastated, and he'd been crying all day. And I think it was either a day or two later that Paul Orndorff ultimately did succumb to his illness. But the the book has two the the, the book has two um, two unofficial endings, shall we say? Um, the first ending always involved Paul Orndorff. Uh, it involved the story of him going to visit uh, Paul in his home during COVID and observing that Paul needed a higher quality of care than he'd been receiving. That was Brian's observation, and so that was in the that was in the ending to the book anyway. And it just so happened that Paul's condition deteriorated so rapidly that he ultimately wound up passing away. So we rewrote the ending. We spent, a, and we didn't spend a full day, but we, we spent some time rewriting the ending to that book or the, the, the ending to the book, it's because it was the ending of the book at the time. And then it was um, the next day that Brian informed me that his son had been found murdered and that he was, he was living every parent's worst nightmare. Those were his words. So, uh, yes, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't just the murder of his son. It was the, we had several, we had several false finishes, so to speak. But yes, yeah, the first involved Paul Wundert's death and the
1: second involved the murder of his son that took place shortly thereafter. Well, we've been talking about the book, and like I said, it's a great read. I'm looking forward to, uh, you know, getting the chance to finish it and all that. But uh, for our listeners out there who would like to order a copy of the book for themselves, you know, where can they find the book at?
2: Oh, you can go straight to Amazon.com and type in Truth, Be Told, B-E-E, Told. Or you can type in Brian Blair, and it should pop right up, and you can place it where there.
1: Well, I highly recommend the book to our listeners. Uh, like I said, it's an amazing read you know, all your books, like Glenn said, all your books have been, uh, you know, a great read. I enjoyed reading about Bugsy McGraw. Love the Hornswoggle the book. It's still one of my, uh, my my top books that I've read. I love that one. But, uh, you know, obviously, you know, Truth Be Told is a great story. Brian Blair is, you know, amazing talent in the ring. He's a great guy with all the work he's done. Uh, you know, very sad about, you know, the, you know, what happened with the son and with Paul Arndorf towards the end of this book and all that working on that. But, I'm going to pass the mic back over to Glenn because I'm sure we're coming up close to the end of our program.
0: Yes, we are indeed. It's been a fun hour chatting uh, and talking about this great book, Truth Be Told, the story of Brian Blair, with our guest, co-author Ian Douglas. And for Ian Douglas and the Grizzled Vet, I'm Glenn Broggett. You've been listening to Rasslin' Memories.